Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. Well, as we look at the first letter from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus, uh, we are going to notice a pattern here in these letters. And um, over the next several weeks, that we will be looking at these letters to the seven churches. And the churches were originally mentioned in chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 11. And he says, write on a scroll what you see uh, and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Myrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So here in chapter 2, the Lord Jesus himself told John to write these letters. If you have a red letter edition Bible, you'll notice that Revelation 2 and 3 are in the red letters, indicating that the Lord, these are the words of the Lord Jesus himself. So these are letters from the Lord Jesus to these seven churches. Now, these weren't the only churches uh, there. There were many churches. In fact, Colossae was right there next to one. And so why did he choose these seven and not the others? Uh, we don't know for sure, but there are a couple of things that we could consider. The number one obvious answer always why these seven churches is because God is God and he can do whatever he wants to do. And, and that's certainly enough. But another reason he may have chosen these seven letters is because where John was on the Isle of Patmos, there uh, probably 60 miles away was Ephesus, and then from there would be the normal mail route along the main road that would go into these seven uh, particular cities where these churches were. So it may have been because of the mail route beginning in Ephesus and going counterclockwise that you would encounter every one of those cities, and so that's why he chose those cities. Another possibility is that John himself, who is there on the Isle of Patmos, he's in his late 80s, early 90s. He's banished to hard labor there for the cause of the gospel. It may be because he had done ministry in, in that area for a long, long time. There is a possibility that John himself had some special relationship to these churches. And perhaps these were churches that John himself had founded. Or maybe these are churches that he had had some pastoral assignment in and around uh, in that area. So these may have been churches that would be special to John himself. But nevertheless, these are letters from Jesus to uh, these seven churches. A lot of speculation, really, is the only way I know to call it, has come about in terms of what these letters are and how they relate uh, to us uh, today and, and what's God's purpose and intention uh, for those. 
Uh, there are some people, for example, who said that that each of the seven churches and the things that Jesus addresses in those churches are things that happened and took place in a particular time in church history in the past. And so there are some who hold that these seven churches represent the seven church ages. And at the end or the close of the seventh age, which they believe that we are now living in, is when Christ will return. Uh, I don't really see that particular case, and I don't really see the support uh, for that as I study these and look at these. Uh, others say that these were just representative churches, uh, and the things that are going on in these um, uh, churches here are things that are going on in churches today. And so just as, just as Jesus took the things and you'll see that he offers a word of commendation, but he offers words of condemnation as well. He compliments those that need to be complimented and he criticizes those that need to be criticized. And to be perfectly honest with you, out of the seven, there's more condemnation and criticizing than there is uh, celebrating and commending. In fact, only two letters in particular uh, have little or no uh, condemnation or, or critical uh, elements to, to them at all. Uh, and we will see those, but five of them certainly, certainly do. And so some would say that these would be elements that could be found in church today if you just look hard enough, if we knew the church, if Jesus knows the church. After all, He is walking in the midst of the lampstands. He knows churches inside and out. That we can see elements of these uh, in different churches along the way. I, I could agree with that, but I also could agree that all the things that are wrong in all of these churches could, in the history of one church take place, right? So it's not just that that churches are going to be bent in one direction or another. I think the thing is, is I, I don't think that we should go through here and see which one, which letter most aptly fits our church. And, and let's just study that one because the rest of them don't apply to us. I think that we should read all seven of them and study all of them and be warned about the things that Jesus warns those churches about. And, 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 and also be right complimented on the things that we're doing that Jesus compliments there. So that all seven of these letters written from the Lord Jesus to actual local churches applies to us today. Now, now before you think, now wait a minute, Pastor, you're always talking about, you know, we need to know the text and context and historical perspective. Why do you think these letters written from Jesus to these specific churches have any bearing on us today and what we do? Well, that's a great question. But it's also a question that's easily answered here in each of these letters. So, for example, if you would, <clears throat> go down to Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit, capitalist, Holy Spirit says, not just to the church in Ephesus there, but to the churches. So 
all of these letters, even the letter that was written to Ephesus, copies would be given to all of the churches and they would have it. But they would also be spread to the other churches as well, recorded in God's word for all churches of every generation and every time to read and to study and to benefit from. So we're not going too far to take the specific things that Jesus writes to the specific church in Ephesus and only limit it, limit it to Ephesus, but it applies to us today. I also want to point out that in these letters, in each of these letters, there's an aspect that the letter is written to the church, to the church. In fact, it's written to an angel or a messenger of the church, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, where he says in chapter 2, verse 1, and he says at the beginning of, of every letter, write to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus. So he's writing to this one who would be representative of the church, and he's giving Given the description of the church, I know this about the church, I know this about the church, I know this about the church. And he goes on to say, and if you don't correct this, then I will come and will remove the lampstand from the church, which means basically, as we will see, that the church will die. The church will die. But not only is he offering these things to the church at large... He also has words for individuals within the church. So, for example, uh, if you just take a look here um, at, uh, at at this one, um, look particularly at the uh, last verse. It says, "Let anyone who has ears hear what the Spirit says." Churches. And then he says this to the one who conquers, or the one who overcomes. In that case, he's talking about individual people within those churches. So even if, as happened in these churches, the lampstand was ultimately removed, there are people within the church who were faithful and who heeded the words of Christ. And to them as individuals, they became uh, overcomers or conquerors. And of course, were entered into um, into heaven and the blessings and the reward uh, of God. So, so as we read these letters, basically what I want to say at this point is, is let's note that there is a church-wide application. Okay? A church-wide application. He's going to talk a lot about the characteristics of these seven churches. But remember that the word church is the word ecclesia, which means called out ones. It's people who have been called out of the world and come together as a church. So the church, the churches are is made up of individual people. And therefore, if these characteristics are characteristics of the entire church, it's because they're characteristics of individual people within the church. So as we look at this by way of application, we want to see, yes, church-wide application, right? But in order to see church-wide application and, yes, church-wide change, we have to be willing to look at us as individual members who make up this particular church.
And so I want to keep that in mind as we go through. So, yes, I believe that there is a contextual application. Jesus certainly wanted, for example, the church at Ephesus to hear and to heed of these things. I want to see a local church in general application where we read this in light of ourselves as a church and, and heed the warnings and, and hear those things as well but also individually that we would right examine ourselves in light and see where we are individually in terms of these characteristics, in terms of these critiques, uh, and, to, and to make sure that we uh, individually are looking at these things uh, as well. Uh, there are some, as we study these seven churches, there there are some uh, basic patterns or a basic structure to the letters. And, and I think it would be helpful for us to kind of look at that. Uh, we're going to be spending several months here uh, looking at these letters. And so if you can kind of begin to see how the letters are written and how they're put together, uh, you'll see the similarities in the letters and their format. Though they're all personal, individual, unique letters, they're not the same. They are written um, basically in a primary uh, format uh, of that. So the format basically would be uh, like this. There are actually eight elements in all of these letters. First of all, it begins with a word of address. So it names the church that it's that he's talking to. So, for example, uh, write chapter two, verse one. Write to the angel uh, of the church in Ephesus. Chapter two, verse eight. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Chapter 2, verse 12, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. And I won't read all of them, but they all begin with words of address. Words of address. Secondly, um, there's a word of description. There's a partial description of Jesus Christ that's mentioned next. For example, in chapter 2, look in verse 1. He says, write to the, the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, that all to sound really familiar. Because we've already looked at that, because we've already seen that, right? We've seen that in John's description of the glorified risen Lord. Remember, John hears the voice and he turns and looks and he sees God. He sees Jesus glorified. And what he, what he sees and what he describes are these unique descriptions there that he sees and writes down. And those descriptions make their way into the various letters. So, for example, in, in chapter 2, uh, verse 8, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Again, the description of Jesus from Revelation chapter 1. But also, as you notice, when we studied those things in Revelation chapter 1, we tied a lot of those things back in with Old Testament truths as, as well. Notice in verse 12, thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. 
Notice in chapter 2, verse 18, Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. Chapter 3, verse 1, Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Chapter 7, thus says the Holy One, chapter 3, verse 7, thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one will open. Chapter 3, verse 14, thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. So in each of these, not only is there a word of address, but there's a word of description about the author, the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ uh, himself. And then there's a word of commendation where he says, I know these things about you. In each of these letters, it will remind us that the Lord Jesus Christ walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. He is to, to know. It doesn't mean that he is progressively coming to know. It means that he fully knows in every area, every capacity, everything that's going on within those churches. And he is saying that he has firsthand personal knowledge and information of the things that are taking place within these churches. And again, may I remind you that the church is not a building or a location. It's a people. And therefore, what he's saying is, is he knows everything personally, intimately, and fully and completely about church people. Individuals, you and I, who have been saved and, and, and born again. And nothing is kept from his eyes. He knows everything about us. He is personal. He is intimately aware and knows. He gives words of accommodation. I know this is true about you. And I know this is true about you. And I know this is true about you. In each of these letters as well, for the most part, according to the general form comes words of criticism. We won't get there today, uh, but but notice what it says in Revelation. Well, you see chapter 2, words of commendation. Chapter 2, verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your endurance. I know these things about you. But then when it comes to the words of, of criticism, notice what he says in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you. So the same God who knows personally, intimately, fully, and completely the good things that we are about and the things that we are doing that are worth commending, He also knows the things that are worth condemning, criticizing, uh, and critiquing. And so in, in each of these where this is necessary, he says, I have this uh, against you. But he doesn't just leave us there. He's not like a lot of us who are great at criticizing and, and, and complaining and, and having a critical spirit. But he offers a word of counsel as well. One thing that you can know about God is every time that God convicts you of sin, every time that God brings sorrow into your life because of things that we are doing wrong, He brings with it a word of counsel. He brings with it a path forward. He brings with it a way of cleansing and, and returning to where it is that you were before. 
You can never simply accuse God of having a critical nature or a critical spirit. Yes, He sees fully clearly. And yes, He is willing because He loves us to point out the things in our life that need to be critiqued, that need to be criticized, that need to be condemned. But He always does it as a loving God. He only does it as a loving Father who is trying to correct us and to discipline us and gives us a path forward. And in chapter 2 he says, remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do these things again. He always provides a word of exhortation or a word of counsel. Not only is there a word of address, a word of description about Christ, a word of commendation, a word of criticism, a word of exhortation, or a word of counsel, but there's also a word of warning of the consequences if we do not follow the counsel. And we do this with our children a lot. Here's where you stepped out of line. And I'm going to encourage you through counsel to get back in line. And if you don't get back in line, these are the consequences of what will happen. Right? These are the consequences. Jesus does the same thing in these letters. Basically, what he says, for example, in this one, as as we will see in chapter two, verse five is the remember from where you've fallen, repent and and repeat, do the first works. But then in chapter six, I mean, verse verse five again, otherwise, here are the consequences. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I'm going to come and shut the church down is what we're going to see this means. If you don't follow the counsel and return. It's a word of warning. In each of these letters, there's also a promise to the conqueror or the overcomer. And the reason, one of the reasons we're going to take so long to cover these letters is because as a Christian, there are times in your life that you will find yourself struggling. And when you find yourself struggling, I want you to know that these letters, personal letters from Christ to His church, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, is a wonderful place for you to go in God's Word and be strengthened and be encouraged. And I believe as we walk through these seven letters over the next season of our of our church, I believe that you will fall in love not only with Jesus, the one who wrote these letters, but this particular section of Scripture and all of the promises that relate to, to those who over overcome and all the promises that relate to the believer. But in each each of these letters, there is this idea of the one who overcomes. And we're going to spend some time looking at what it means to be an overcomer. Look at what it means to be an overcomer or to be one who conquers. Just to kind of point it out so you can see, this would be chapter 7, the, after the instruction to all the churches, he says, to the one who conquers, or the word is translated overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so we're going to be looking at what does it mean if the ones who overcome enjoy these blessings and benefits, then how can we uh, uh, ensure that we are overcomers? 
or we are conquerors and, and able to enjoy and celebrate these things. So we will be talking about the overcomer and the conqueror in these things uh, as well. And then really seven and eight are kind of out of order. I mixed them up, but but it's the words of appeal. Words of appeal to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice what it says, as we've already pointed out. Anyone who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 11. uh, Chapter 2, verse 17. And and on and on in each of those. it's 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 a pleading. It's a word of appeal uh, to hear and to heed the things that are that are taking place. So this will be the the general flow of these particular letters, and um, this is what it will look like as we as we walk through uh, those those letters. So what I want to do today is I want to go ahead and, and just kind of dig a little deeper in chapter 2, verse 1. And I can already see we're not going to cover as much as I hoped that we would cover today because I'm certainly aware of the time. Uh, but I want to go ahead and kind of throw this out because uh, and, and talk about this because this will relate to all the letters as well. And, and I've mentioned this before. I mentioned it last week and possibly the week before. But I thought that we would look at it a, a little bit closer uh, because I want everyone to kind of... I have an opportunity to, to understand um, uh, how, how this works and, and why we translate the things that we translate in, in the ways that we do. So another unique characteristic in all of these letters um, is the word angel. You see that in chapter 2, verse 1? Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus... Uh, chapter 2, verse 8, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Chapter 2, verse 12, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Chapter 2, verse 18, write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, write to the angel, write to the angel, write to the angel, write to the angel. And, and I think this is a good uh, discussion and, and a discussion that's, that's worthy to have. I've listened to a, a lot of sermons uh, through the years, and I've preached a lot of sermons. Sermons, uh, on these letters uh, as well, and and, um, and and usually I'll just make a statement like this: It says angel, angel can be translated messenger, and I think messenger is a better case uh, than angel, and the messenger is probably the pastor, and then just just move on. But what I thought we'd do, because we're docs and we're different, right, uh, is I would give you a little more of the basis for that. Because after all, if we stress, right, every word of the Bible... Uh, is the Word of God. And it's true uh, in John and Tittle, and we have no business changing the Word of God, then I think a fair question to ask is, is what's the deal, Pastor? It says angel, and it says angel in the majority of the translations. Number one, why did the translators translate it angel instead of messenger, if it could be both? And why are you choosing messenger, even though all of the translating translation teams in the majority of the Bibles call it an angel and I think that's a good question and I think it's a question that's worth considering because after all uh, I would not be for arbitrarily taking a word and changing the word just because it fits better with what you think it is 
there has to be some reasons why there there has to be uh, something because, you know, you're like, OK, you're just a pastor and these are scholars and you might have a doctorate degree, but you're not who those guys are. And they translate it this way. So so why do you and by the way, a majority of other pastors translated as messenger. And why would they even consider to be an angel uh, in the first place? Some of the accusations could be, what are you afraid of angels? Right? Because oftentimes we can, we can forget that there are supernatural beings and spiritual realities that are taking place all around us. Even Hebrews says that sometimes we even entertain angels unaware. You can go all the way through the Bible. And for example, in Gideon, when God opened Gideon's eyes, he couldn't see them unless God opened his eyes. And there were, there were, there were angels everywhere. So I think it'd be good to kind of take a look and kind of present some of the data, if you will, or some of the, the Bible truths and uh, and then make your own conclusion about about what it is. And this certainly wouldn't be one to break fellowship over. Um, this would be something that would be worth uh, studying and considering and, and looking at the data. But but just because I come to the conclusion that, that it's messenger, and I believe personally the pastor, to write it to the pastor of the churches, not that the pastor is an angel, but in this case he is. He is. No, I'm kidding. Kidding, kidding. Um, but if you look at this and you come away and just say, uh, I think it's angel, that's perfectly okay. Right? It's perfectly okay. And you're not, we're not gonna break fellowship, uh, over this. So let's take a look at this word. The word in the original language is the word angelos. Angelos. Angelos sounds like angel, and indeed it is translated as the word angel. In fact, 98 to 99% of the times the word angelos is found in the Bible. It is to an angel. Now, it could be good angels or it could be bad angels, but it's a spiritual being. And so there's certainly a lot of contextual uh, uh, support that would say this word angelos ought to be translated as angel. In fact, when you get to Revelation chapter 4, even in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 1 and following, every time the word angelos is used, it's always referring to angels. Now, now, let's just make sure that we're clear on what angels are. Um, angels are not what happens to you when you die. Babies don't die because God needed another little angel. Okay? When you die, you're not going to become an angel. An angel is a separate order of created beings. Angels have no ability uh, or capacity uh, to propagate uh, and to procreate and do all those things. Every angel that's ever existed has been personally created by God Himself. 
All the angels God created were good and perfect and holy. They were his messengers. They were, in, they were giving him praise and worship. There are myriad, going to be myriad and myriad and myriad of angels in heaven. The Bible says that there are cherubim that are next to the throne in heaven. There are seraphim, as we see both in Isaiah chapter 6 and other places. So there apparently is some order or ranking of these created beings in, in heaven. They are a separate spiritual, uh, created order in heaven that are messengers of God. In other words, they only do what God tells them to do. Go here and say this. Take the message of the birth of Christ to the shepherds in the field. They are ministering spirits, if you will, that God has created. In terms of order and ranking with where we are right now, the Bible tells us that you and I, in terms of ranking, are a little lower than the angels. A little lower than the angels. And that may be one of the reasons why people hope that when you go to heaven, you're elevated and your little spiritual body will make you an angel. But listen, that is not what's going to to happen. I've got bad news for you. If you had really, really hoped that when you go to heaven, you're going to become an angel, I've got some really, really bad news for you. You will not. In fact... When you and I get our glorified bodies and go to heaven, according to the book of 1 Corinthians, we will then no longer be lower than the angels, but we will be above the angels. And Paul tells the church at Corinth, do you not know that one day you will judge the angels? So for you to become an angel in heaven is going to be demoted from the position that God has placed you. So let's just be clear about what angels are to begin with. Separate order of created being. Right now we're a little bit lower. One day we will judge uh, the angels. They are messengers of God. A subset of angels, about a third of the angels fell. How many is that? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just tells us there are myriads of myriads, thousands and thousands. Right there, an innumerable number. The Bible never tells us how many there are. Uh, but more than, than can be counted. And a third of those followed Satan and fell and became fallen angels or became demons. And they have their own hierarchy as well. There are some different characteristics between angels and demons. This is not about angelology, but just to kind of throw this out there as well. Fallen angels have no ability uh, to, to create a body for themselves. Apparently, good angels do because Hebrew says that there are times that, that they fast themselves in the body and we entertain angels unaware. So they have the ability to take on a physical presence, a physical body, and to be able to do the things there. But nowhere in the Bible do fallen angels or demons. Apparently, with the fall, one of the things that changed or one of the things that happened was the ability to do so because they always, fallen angels, demons, always need a conduit to possess or a, a vessel to uh, to to possess in order to have a visible presence. Example. Uh, the 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 pigs. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and there would be other examples as well. But again, you've never seen. Uh, they will disguise themselves as angels of light, and therefore they will possess people and do things along those lines. But but they they do not have the ability to fashion and form uh, for themselves. So with all this evidence and all this proof and 99% of the time translated angels, um, why would we not look at it here? Well, there are places that the same word is used, angelos, but it clearly, clearly doesn't mean an angel, but it means a messenger, a human messenger of God. For example, if you would go with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. This is uh, in relation to... um, Let's see... Well, that's not the right. That's not the right one. Hang on a second. Go to Luke chapter seven. Sorry, not John. Luke. Luke chapter seven. Luke chapter seven. This is uh, dealing with John the Baptist who is in prison. And in Luke chapter 7, John's disciple, verse 18 says, told him about these things. And so John summoned two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord. Remember this story? We studied this uh, several months ago. And John the Baptist, he's locked up, he's in prison. He wants to know, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, verse 20. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits. He granted sight to many blind people. Verse 22, he replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind received their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who is not scandalized or offended by me. And we looked at when we studied the stone prophecies. But now notice verse 24, Luke 7, 24. After John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. That word messenger there, clearly people, clearly people is the word angelos, the exact same word in Revelation uh, chapter two in the in the letters, the the exact same uh, word. Um, you could go to there are a couple other places as well. You could go to James chapter two. Um, James chapter 2, verse 25, uh, I believe it is. 
James chapter 2 verse 25 speaking about Rahab. James 2.24 says, You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? Remember the story in the Old Testament? She received the, the messengers who had gone into the city to spy out and, and she, she hid them. Here in James is his telling that story, the word messenger is the word uh, angelos, uh, is, is, is the word uh, angelos. And so, uh, again, it is translated messenger. And so there are times that it is translated as human messengers, uh, as human messengers. Um, so, so as we, as you look at these things, you can, you can see, uh, that the word is used in different capacities. There's another place, uh, in the gospels as well. And, um, and I'll get that to you again where the word messenger is translated and it's clearly a messenger and, and not an angel. So knowing that that word can be translated one or the other, which is it? Which is it? Well, there is some support for the word angel. Uh, support for the word angel comes in the fact, um, well, one particular verse in, in, in comes to mind. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is an interesting passage of Scripture, and it's kind of like this is just sort of thrown in there. Um, uh, this part is thrown in there, and, and of course we know it's thrown in there for a purpose or a reason, even if we don't fully understand what it means. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I mean, excuse me, chapter 11, it's talking about instructions about head coverings. In this particular case, it's talking about whether, about how women should have their heads covered when they come to worship. And I won't get into all the cultural things uh, of that today and uh, in that regard. I do simply want to, want to say this though, but look down if you would in, in, in verse, let's just pick up in verse 8. He says, for a man did not come from woman, but woman from a man. Neither was man created for the sake of the woman, but woman for the sake of man. Verse 10, this is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head. Now look at that next phrase. Because of the angels. Because of the angels. Um, this passage suggests that angels were not uncommonly present at times when the church gathered for worship. And that particular angels were given assignments to specific churches is certainly conceivable. Conceivable. So that when the church would gather, there would be angels there and Paul is writing. And one of the reasons why he says that you ought to, you ought to do this. Now it has to do with the cultural context, the fact there were temple prostitutes and, and all the things that, that were going on there. But it was to place a symbol of authority over your head so that the angels who were assigned to that particular church would not be offended. Would not be offended. Uh, so you'd want to do that simply, he says, because of, uh, of the uh, angels. Because of the angels. So if, if Revelation 2 is translated angels, 
then we have some things that we have to sort of consider and look at as well. Some questions, I think, would arise. If John told Jesus told John to write these letters, well, how would John get the letters to the particular angels? How, how would he how would he get it to them? Uh, some would say that as clearly as Jesus told John to write the letters, that he also did the same thing in the spiritual realm to the angels, so that they would have the letters. Then I don't see the point of having John write the letters to give to the to the churches. I mean, how, how would we know? How would how would we or how would John know that the angels got the letters? I mean, is it kind of like cookies and milk at Christmas time? You know, you you set them out, and I mean, would it be there, and and then they would be gone? Is that is that how that he would he would know? I, I think that's a that's a good question. And and if the letters go to the churches, what are the churches supposed to do so that the angels get it? And so I think these are I think these are reasonable, but there are some other I think stronger evidence as well. Remember that John tells Jesus tells John write to the angel of the church at Ephesus. And as he writes to the angel who would be the representative of the church, he says some things there that would be impossible for angels to do. For example, in one letter he says be faithful unto death. Angels don't die. How can an angel be faithful unto death if they don't die? Uh, in another one, he says this, right? In these letters, he says, repent. Angels don't repent. First Peter says that angels suit down and look at you and I because we sin over and over and over again. And yet God extends grace. God extends mercy. God extends salvation, right? And he saves us. The angels, first Peter says, long to look in our lives and are amazed at the grace of God that we receive because never one time, never one time has an angel ever been given an opportunity to, re- to repent. Oh, wow. All of those one third of the angels that fell with Satan, that became demons. Listen, they never had an opportunity to repent. They never had an opportunity to return. Once they sinned one time, they were forever changed into a separate category and never offered grace, never offered mercy, never offered forgiveness. And yet you and I sin in the same ways that they sin. Pride, rebellion, stubbornness, desiring to be God. And yet God constantly and continuously extends grace and mercy to us and the gift of salvation. But if the word angel here is translated messenger who is representative of the church, even the pastors, as I would believe, because he holds them in his right hand, means that he is sovereign over the pastors and the churches and the ministries that he is intimately aware of and intimately involved with. Would it not be reasonable to find sin in the pastor's life or a messenger's life? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's not so with the angels. And wouldn't it be reasonable to call a human messenger to repent? Absolutely. 
And wouldn't it be reasonable to think that they would need encouragement to be faithful to the end? Oh yeah, it would. Why? Because all of us, even pastors, find ourselves weary and well-doing and find ourselves in situations where you need the encouragement to be faithful to the end. So for all of those reasons, I believe that when we look at this, and he says right to the angel that he's talking about the, the pastor, he's talking about the bishop, the elder, the overseer. All of those are interchangeable words for the same position. It's not limited to that. It could be, it could be a key layperson in the church. It could be a key leader in the church in some other capacity. But one thing is true. It's whoever this individual is, Jesus is the one who chose them. There's no volunteering for that. Jesus sovereignly selected this person as being representative of the church. And I'm so glad that he did. Because you even look at our group today and say, okay, well, who, which one of us would be most representative of who we are as a church? You're talking about creating a church fight. Not with us, but, you know, other churches. So Jesus chooses the one... And as he writes this letter to the church, this individual is representative of all the things that are taking place in those churches. And it would be reasonable that this would be a human messenger as opposed to an angel. But again, I wouldn't break fellowship over with someone who said it has to be an angel. These are just you know things that we study and look at and uh, consider. So as we read, we'll read the text as it is, angel, and as I preach, I will read the text for what it means. I'll say messenger, the angel or messenger, and um, whatever you want to cling to uh, in in that case will be fine, but at least you'll know where I'm coming from uh, in this particular case. So as we look at these letters... Um, then what we're going to do is we're going to study the background. What is the city? What are things that are going on? What's happening in, in that particular church? We're going to look at the things that they're commended for. We're going to look at the things that they're criticized for. We're going to look at the counsel that they're given. And what we're also going to do is we're going to, we're going to bring in some elements and some things about that city that I think honestly uh, is going to amaze you. Um, and it's just it's just kind of right dropping down into the, the biblical world and seeing and knowing these cultures. It's probably going to change some of your understandings of some passages of Scripture. Okay, uh, particularly for example, when we get to the one where he talks about how would that you would be hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. That is a clear cultural, physical picture in that city that we need to look at to have a better understanding of what it is. And it doesn't say what you think it means anyway, right? Because we tend to interpret that as either be hot for Christ or he's going to spew you out. But it doesn't say be hot or be cold, but because you're lukewarm. So what does it mean to be hot and to be cold? 
and um, he will vomit you out of his mouth. So we're going to be looking at some of those things. So we'll tie in some cultural connections, some uniquenesses about those particular cities and maybe why he offered the word of counsel that he did. And I believe it's going to be a very, very fruitful uh, study. But today, I hope the thing that you walk away with today, um, not just the information, which I think is, is helpful and good, but knowledge puffs up. But I hope what you walk away with today is an appreciation for your salvation. Uh, appreciation for something that you have that the angels don't even have. I hope you walk away with a sense, and I hope not only today, but the but this letter in general will give you the sense that you're not alone, right? When Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, that He is truly with you in everything that you're enduring and everything that you're encountering and everything that you're going through. That when you find yourself under the the crushing weight of burden, that you're not holding it by yourself, that He is here with you. The, the idea, and we didn't quite get there today, but the word is peripateo. He is walking. He is continuously walking and pacing and walking through. Not pacing in worry, but intimately involved in walking through the lampstands and everything that is that is going on and taking place in the lives of the church. And I'll remind you again that the church is a people, not a building. He is walking in between the church. I hope you leave here today with a, a great understanding of, of who you are in Christ and how He has redeemed you and how if it was your goal and ambition to become an angel that you're not so disheartened and disappointed that you recognize that you will be elevated over those. And I do hope that it will correct right uh, the words that come from our mouth when we try to encourage people who have passed on, try to make them something that they will not become. They will not be angels. But most, most of all, because everything is pretty went deeper inside of me than I could imagine. It went so deep. It caused my flesh to have choke on. Wow. I've never that way before. Wow. To God be the glory. Today, my life has changed. Amen. Amen. To God be the glory. Folks, that's why we do what we do. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Well, let's stand for prayer. And um, as always, uh, I'm, I'm always around and always willing to meet with you after the service or willing to meet with you at, at a convenient time this week to, to walk through, answer questions, pray, counsel uh, in any way. And um, I, just, I just thank God for what He's doing and what He's doing in our, in our midst and in our church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it has been good to be in the house of God today. It has been good to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. 
to study the truthfulness of Your Word. And Father, to know that that You've loved us enough to give us Your Word. Father, I pray for each and every one of us. And Father, that these truths would penetrate beyond our minds and into our hearts and they would ultimately affect the path of our lives in which we walk. Father, I'm thankful that the Lord Jesus is willing to walk in the midst of the lampstand, in the midst of the churches, and He personally and intimately knows these things about our lives. Father, He knows where we are in our walk with You, and He knows the next steps that we need to take. Lord, we know that You do all things well. And we cling to Your truth in our lives. Father, where there's lostness, bring salvation. Where there's sin, bring sanctification. Where there's sitting passively, would You bring about active service? Father, would You bring within us an awareness of the lost people around us who need the truths of Your Word? And Father, would You give us the courage and would You give us the strength to step beyond our personalities and beyond our barriers to speak the truth of the Gospel into the lives of the people that You place around us? Father, would You continue the work on us? And would You continue to allow our lampstand to shine brighter each and every day that we may be light even to our dark city. Lord, we're going to give You the glory for it all. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. And God's people said...